Okay, today I'm with Tom Waterhouse of the Waterhouse Bookmaking Dynasty from Australia. Thanks very much for agreeing to do this, Tom. Um, can I go straight into the first question, please, and say, some people say that you've had a great advantage being from a family of great bookmakers. Do you, did you find it a huge added pressure to succeed and live up to your forefathers? Um, no, I don't, I don't think I did. Um, I found the pressure from the family in, in a sense that they're really hard workers. Like my mum gets up at 2.05 a.m. every morning. Um, my dad gets up at about 3 a.m. every morning and they're so successful and been successful for a long period of time, yet they continue to work really hard. And so working not working hard was, was not an option. Um, it didn't matter what we did, it was just always, it was very clear that you have to work hard and, and be committed to doing it. But it wasn't any sort of pressure to be in racing um, whatsoever. That's what I was going to ask, with such a heritage, not only in bookmaking but also your mum training, was there any doubt you'd be involved in the business um, and were you not tempted to skip university altogether and just get stuck in straight away? Uh, so as a kid I didn't like um, racing at all, I used to think it was crazy that my parents would um, talk about racing all the time and, and I used to complain, can't you talk about something more interesting than, than horse racing and then I was six months into my first year at uni and my dad said look come and um, come out to the racetrack and give it a go. And I went out there and, and I just loved it. There was just so much money, so much action, um, the theater uh, of the betting ring. And, and I said to him, I go, look, if, if you don't mind, can I come out um, as many days as possible? And so I rearranged my university timetable. And, and when I wasn't at university, I was at the, the racetrack or at the dog track, going to as many meetings as possible. And, and that really became um, the, the interest of my life. I, lo I loved it. and. Then my mum would complain, look, you guys never stop talking about odds being me and my dad. Um, and look, I never thought to leave to leave university early because I'd committed to, to start it and um, and therefore I wanted to finish it. But it def I definitely knew after a few months at the track that my life would be around horse racing and, and bookmaking. So has your degree proved helpful in, in this career? I think... Um, school and degree it's a, it really gives you that self-confidence that you can follow through on something and finish something I, I don't I don't know if day in day out I go well look uh, I remember what I did in in my finance lectures or in commerce, commerce lectures or whatever what the different bits and pieces that I learned in that lecture but definitely following through and and being committed and also having to juggle so I was a full-time book bookmaker by the time that I finished university trying to juggle a full-time profession and a university degree it, um, it's a good life lesson but uh, yeah I don't know if uh, I think I learned a lot more on the job than I do in a lecture in the lecture room. Okay if I, I forgot my facts correct you got an on-course bookmaking license by 2003 and by 2008 you reportedly fielded 20 million pounds over four days at the Melbourne Festival more than all the other bookies combined how did you get to be so dominant so quickly and what was your unique selling point? So it's a it doesn't sound like a long time, but 2003 was really 2001 I was out of the track and I spent the first few years working with my dad on, on the bag and then on the ground and, and writing tickets if he went to the country, which I was very poor, poor at, um, but uh, and on the computer, uh, learning all the different bits and pieces. And my dad gave me, a, uh, was an amazing, or is an amazing dad in that he gave, um, had so much faith in me as a, as a as a person and as a son. So within um, six weeks of being at the racetrack, he said, look, I have to go away, you can run my stand for me. Now, 
you can lose a lot of money running a bookmaking stand and, and he had that faith to for me to give it a try and and then he said to my grandfather look come out of retirement and uh, teach your grandson how to be a how to be a bookmaker so I had my my dad who's a form genius and very analytical and I had my grandfather who was the biggest bookmaker in the world in the in the 1960s and 70s and I had both of them at different points in time teaching me the trade of um, trade of bookmaking and so I worked with my dad for a few years and then I went into partnership with my grandfather in in about 2003 and we worked from being the smallest bookmakers to, to the largest bookmakers in Sydney and uh, and then in 2008 I went down and, and became a bookmaker in Melbourne and the thing that um, learning the lessons of both my father and my, my dad I, I had a good knowledge of, of bookmaking and it really been driven into me to be a bookmaker big bookmaker which my grandfather grandfather was but I also had a technology advantage in that I had um, Betfair was obviously out and I and I had access to it uh, the internet which New South Wales bookmakers didn't have I had access to it in in Melbourne and um, I had the ability to offer customers a very different product set in Melbourne as as compared to Sydney, I could offer them a product called Best Tote, um, and also my dad was a form genius, so I had really good form. I had access to the internet, which the other bookmakers didn't have access to the exchange, uh, and I had a better product offering than what our counter my counterparts in Sydney had. And, and the business really just boomed. It um, it went from um, well, all the bookmakers combined. We held 20 million over the four days of the Melbourne Carnival, um, more than all the other bookmakers combined, and, and holding a few hundred million dollars a, a year um, a, as an on-course bookie. Um, and it was it was tremendous. But it, like everything, things change, and, and the internet changed on-course bookmaking, and, and also the difference in taxes, and and the fact that you could advertise the off-course bookmakers. And what was a great business in 2008? By 2009, it was my last year at the on-track bookmaker, bookmaking and then I shifted to being a telephone-only bookmaker. So during that time when you were fielding such colossal amounts of money, did you actually have to have colossal liabilities at the same time? Yes, yeah, so there was um, probably about, as an on-course bookmaker, I only had 100 clients um, betting with me and, um, and then obviously all the on-track on money, but you could at the time, um, I remember being a roll or two rolls over the favourite in the derby and, and got 500,000 cash out of, out of that particular runner. And I had out of the 100 clients, probably half a dozen clients that were very high net wealth clients betting in many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So a liability on a day on a particular race would, wouldn't be unusual to be over a million and, and probably unusual, but occasionally be two, two and a half million you'd be standing a um, particular horse for. So it was um, large swings. I know on Derby Day in 2008, um, lost $2 million on, on the first day of the carnival. And um, and know you've got three big days left to go, so it's it, it was definitely um, it definitely was a yeah, really um, exciting time and, and big punters and big betting and, and the other bookies were betting big as well. You could get on um, with other bookmakers for large amounts and get off if you had a big liability. So it was a very uh, exciting time to, to be at the track. You mentioned other bookmakers. Was there ever a backlash that this huge force suddenly appeared? and taking you know, money from them? So I don't think, um, in, in 2008, no, but what happened is the advertising got allowed for off-track bookmakers in 2008, and really you had the iPhone that came out the year before, and, and you had the shift to online, and when that shift to online really happened, sort of by 2009, then it was 
the feeling between on-course bookmakers was it became a lot tighter because the same money wasn't being um, uh, being bet around. And uh, but that's part and, and parcel. There was no sort of specific animos animosity between myself and another bookmaker. It's just it's the game, isn't it? Um, yeah, so you saw really you saw the, the change coming. So in 2010, you launched TomWallhouse.com, um, which quickly grew, and then by 2013, it sold it again. How did how did that sort of transpire? Yeah. So uh, look, um, I realised by um, 2009 that um, I, I I tried to lay the favourite in the derby the following year in 2009, and could only get about five thousand dollars out of the favourite, being a couple rolls over the over the call. And realised that it was it was gone on track bookmaking in in not gone completely but gone to the same way that it was um, the years before or even the year prior. And so I went well. I've got a hundred really good big clients. I'll go and become a telephone only bookmaker. And so I became a telephone only bookmaker. And and um, then uh, said well look I may as well have an internet offering um, uh, as well. And that took a while to build and and different skill sets were were needed. And um, Launched a very soft launch in 2009 with an internet site, and then launched properly in 2010, not really knowing where it would go. And there was only three of us basically in the office there with the internet business. But we spent a little bit. We went on TV. Uh, I actually went on a, a segment with my with my mum, who's a, a famous trainer in, in Australia, and and was on the TV with her. And the signups went through the roof. And when I say through the roof, um, we normally got maybe one or two a day, and we got 60 on that day. And I went, gosh. TV works, and so we started spending a little bit more on TV, and started off with a hundred thousand dollar marketing budget in about March 2011, and literally the business then took off. We went we went from three people to over a hundred people working with us, and went from a hundred customers to a quarter of a million customers in eighteen months, and um, and our marketing budget went from a hundred thousand to sort of twenty million a year marketing budget. So it was a really big growth. Um, period and, and the business went um, went really well and, and um, it was a really exciting time. It just feels like a blur now but it, um, it was a really exciting time. So I had the telephone business and had this online business that was that was growing and, and really the point of difference about in the, the online business was there was an individual um, that was behind it and branded as such and, um, and also that it was um, we knew that the TV assets worked and we bought up all the big TV assets. We, we got the rugby league, the AFL, we had the tennis, and just bought these main major media assets because we knew that the likes of Paddy Power, Bet365, William Hill would probably come to Australia or, or had already come, or, or had already come, and that there were only a certain amount of TV assets in the country. So, um, yeah, it was, it was an exciting ride. As you mentioned William Hill, you've built this this really successful business in a, a matter of three or four years. What made you decide to take on the CEO William Hill and not suddenly concentrate on building your own empire further? So what happened was is that we um, all these overseas operators operated at such larger scale than what we operated at. So our um, we probably spend a few hundred thousand a year on our platform, maybe at the most a million dollars a year on our platform, and you see that the large companies they're spending um, X hundred million dollars a year in expenses in Australia and so saw that these big companies came in and realised that they um, how much we had to scale up and the, the amount of investment we needed to make was significantly more than um, than what we had been making and realised we needed to, to come up with a or come 
come into the market with a, with a partner and we looked uh, around at who'd be the best partner and, and William Hill, it was a long sale process, but William Hill turned out to, they made us a, an offer for the business and, and that sale process went for probably nine months and and um, from our point of view, it was, a, it was a terrific result sort of to start the business a couple of years prior and, and sell out to a major public listed company like William Hill that had the heritage and the background that William Hill had and, and also um, expertise um, in areas that we didn't have. And um, so we sold the business in 2013 and we're in an earn out um, for a year and, and then their CEO said, would you like to come on board and, and um, run the business in, in Australia? They bought us and they bought um, the Sporting Bet business which had Centibet as well. And um, and I'd never had a corporate career at all and, and some some members of my family said, well look, don't be, don't be ridiculous, why would you go and work for someone else? But at the same time, could see the sense in that um, you can learn a lot by, by working with a big company and see how big companies operate, both good and bad. And uh, it was a great learning experience being CEO of William Hill Australia for the last few years and, and learn a lot, made a, a lot of great um, friends and, and contacts and, and saw some of the really terrific advantages that big public listed companies have with that scale and also the dis disadvantages that they have. So, um, but it was a, a terrific, um, experience and, and and yeah obviously feel very privileged that they asked me to do the, the role and, and that I could spend that amount of time um, running that business. Well some people find it very difficult to sort of transition so what would be, how much different is it um, from running your own business to running William Hill with your answer to shareholders and be judged by investors? Yes I think the, um, the there's a lot more structure obviously in, in large companies and um, and there's, uh, in a way, a lot more red tape. Um, but there's probably, a, in many ways, a lot more strategic thought about what you're going to do because you have to get so many stakeholders on board to um, to try and, and, and do something. And that comes with huge advantages in that you've got a lot of people thinking about where you're going to go and how to plan. And, um, and disadvantages in that you're very nimble when you're a small operation or a startup. Um, and you can move very quickly and, and that's the biggest, it's like you're in a, a little speedboat compared to a, a, a big ocean liner and both have their advantages and, and disadvantages. But one of the amazing things I saw with, with, with William Hill is um, the global network and, and the structure of being a, an international business. So in Australia we had, um, we started out with a couple of people in the, in the Philippines in Manila and we grew that business in the Manila to being over 150 people. And the skill sets that you find uh, in Asia, especially the Philippines, were, were amazing. And uh, had, they had offices in, in Tel Aviv, um, and obviously Gibraltar, and, and, uh, and in, in many other parts also, obviously it's extensive here in the UK. And seeing that international um, skill sets and, and what that scale gives you, um, that big companies have a big advantage in, in, that, in that sense. You're changing track slightly. It seems, from what I've read, and obviously very comfortable in front of the camera, you seem to enjoy the media aspect of your career. Do you think it's important to keep a high public profile? Uh, look, one of the things about selling the business, TomWaterHouse.com, I sold, I sold my name. So, um, I, and I thought, well, I'm going to be out of the limelight now and, and having a good corporate job with William Hill and I've got a great wife and, and three kids. I thought, well, look, I'm going to stay under under the radar and, and um, 
but I'm very privileged. I come from a, a family that's really well known in Australia in a long line of um, bookmakers and, and my mum and, and her father have been uh, champion horse trainers. So uh, no matter how much I stayed out of the, the limelight, there was still publicity and press around myself and the family. And, and that's a, a great advantage. Obviously, the, every great advantage comes with a disadvantage as well. But um, And so when I was able to get the my brand and, and, um, and domain back and IP back, um, is that it's such a big advantage that that name is well known and, and known in the space and and uh, and yeah so even though it's not always comfortable being in front of the camera and, and putting your name out there and putting yourself out there um, it's also a, it's a big advantage and, and I feel very very thankful that I've got my my brands and and my business back so um, in a different world would you would you quite fancy a job in the media no, definitely not. Going on TV or in the camera um, is just so nerve-wracking. I was in, um, when I, it feels like when I was a kid, but it would be uh, 12 years ago, I was on um, Dancing with the Stars in Australia, which is, I think it's called Strictly Come Dancing here. And um, the, I just was so sick and nervous before going on TV and, and literally went to the bathroom probably a hundred times before going out there. and. Um, I, it just is terrifying for me. It's it's all right speaking to you here now because it's just the two of us. But I find it very nerve wracking being on TV. But at the same time, when you're trying to promote your business, it's um, if you're not prepared to do it, well, you're in the wrong game. Um, but definitely not. I, I wouldn't want to be in the media outside of from a business perspective. Now you've mentioned the global aspect of uh, betting and gambling these days, and I noticed also looking at your Twitter feed, you've mentioned Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. As, as the internet has made the industry totally global pretty much now, do you feel that those sort of countries are the future for trading? Look, I think in um, first world countries um, that where gambling is, is legal, then probably not, for a, or at least not for a while to come. But what we saw when we were expanding our operations in the Philippines, we went and looked at um, whether we should ex expand in India. We went and spent a lot of time in Taiwan and in, in China. And we saw that um, there were these operators that were much smaller than us. So William Hill's got 16,000 people globally. Um, we saw operators that had 50 or 60 people and were turning over astronomical sums um, betting-wise and they only offered cryptocurrency. And the reason why they were so successful, I think, is that um, they were able to access markets where it's either very hard to get a bank account or it's very hard if you do have a bank account to be able to access a gambling or a betting operator. And so, with the cryptocurrency operators, you don't even have to sign up. You, you just have to have, whether it's Bitcoin or Litecoin or any of the, the cryptocurrencies, and you can bet straight away with with these operators and um, without having to go through a middleman. And the amount they're turning over is astronomical, but also the limits. Um, for instance, if you're a new customer with uh, in Australia and you go and try and bet with one of the, the um, corporates or the, the big bookmakers, you might be able to get on, on an NBA match to win $10,000. First bet with these cryptocurrency operators, you can get on to win $100,000, $150,000 straight off the bat. So the, the limits and um, where they can access um, revenue from is, is far, far more expanded than what um, the bookmakers in, uh, in Australia can, can at the moment. But do I think there's going to be a big shift from Australian 
local Australian people going to cryptocurrency operators? No, I don't think so, because they can't advertise, obviously, in Australia. Okay, TomWaterhouse.com is now tipping site, for once of a better word, um, where you can go from bronze for a free bet every week to platinum, where somebody will pay $120,000 a year to be personally involved with you. Uh, it might seem strange to some people coming from a dynasty of bookmakers that you run something like that. How does it sit with running a bookmaking firm? So I just, obviously I'm um, getting the brands back. I had a non I have a non-compete in Australia for taking bets for two years. And I just thought, well, I find it very hard to get on with the bookmakers in Australia because the taxes have gone uh, so much higher. And so because I was being restricted um, from the bookmakers to the other bet, I thought, well, there's skills and, and knowledge that has been passed on to me from the four generations of bookmakers that, that I come from and, and my dad who's obviously a professional punter and my dad who is such a large bookmaker is that there's knowledge that's been passed on to me in, in how to win betting and why not offer a, a service to people that I can say well look this is how you win betting this is what you need to back this is how much you have to have on them and this is uh, the price you need to take because really there's three ingredients to being a winning punter you need to take you need to have the right tip um, you need to know how much to have on it and you need to um, take the right price and most people don't know that most people are um, just happy to have their 20 20 bucks or 20 pounds on on a runner and, and hope it's uh, it wins based on the name or the color or whatever reasons they choose and you can actually win betting um, but there is so few winning punters and it takes discipline and, and what I wanted to try and do especially during this um, period that I'm out of taking bets is show punters and, and members of TomWaterhouse.com look you can win betting and this is how you go about doing it. So if you've got clients that were successful following you, is there a lot of danger they'd get their accounts closed down by winning Look, if they follow the tips exactly as I've said to them and they get on at the best price, yes, they will find it very hard to get on, like I find it very hard to get on. But what most of the punters, are, I think, that have come through are not looking to do it as a profession. They're looking just to have a better guide of how to be a better punter than what they were before. And if they remain that they're a recreational punter, no, I think that um, the majority of them will still be able to have their accounts on, but they'll be better and they won't be, uh, they'll be a better punter than what they were before. Have you had any clients for the service that have progressed from bronze to platinum by simply working their way up through and reinvesting their winnings? So I had plenty of customers that have gone from bronze um, to uh, the whether it's the silver or the gold, uh, but no, no customers that have gone from bronze yet to emerald and platinum. They've started off at gold and gone to emerald or platinum, but bronze, the highest they've gone from bronze starting out is to go to gold. Can we ask how many 120,000 pound customers you've got? Yeah, I'm not going to give you the exact number, but it's it's only 30 days in, and, and I'm surprised with the take up, not only the platinum, but surprised with the take up of of, of the whole business. Um, really, it's um, it's gone a lot better than than what I thought, and, and hopefully, I can just keep giving a great service, and and it's gone gone much better than what I thought. But obviously, I'm here with a, a couple of the punters. Um, for Ascot this week, and, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's been great. Now you've mentioned about advertising. Um, going back a, a while, you got yourself into a little bit of trouble, even going up to the Australian Prime Minister, um, with people objecting to the amount of advertising where you're actually advertising. 
Is there a fine line between advertising a legitimate business and also having to have some social responsibility? So I think um, what happened in Australia is that advertising only just got allowed in 2008. And so you had all of these overseas operators come in and also local operators come in and start advertising um, extensively. And because I was as an individual and it was called rather than sports bed or sporting bed or TAB sports bed, it was called TomWaterHouse.com. Um, there was a face for people to go, look, we don't like all of this gambling advertising on all the time. And uh, like in anything, when suddenly something's allowed, there's a flood and, uh, of, of activity and, and then people adapt to what's acceptable. Um, I think from gambling advertising, if you're going to allow, allow gambling um, in a country, then I think advertising is is very important because it it is incentivizes those that are regulated and illegal operators to stay in that in that market where you can tax them. And you we talked about cryptocurrency operators before. The major difference between um, those offshore illegal operators not getting much traction in um, countries where you're allowed betting is that it's so easy to find because they advertise a legitimate regulated bookmaker that pays taxes and so without advertising you're on the same level playing field really as the licensed and the unlicensed so and I think in Australia there's been a huge change in what you're allowed to offer and incentives and the way that you advertise and, and I think it everything finds its level um, doesn't it and I think in Australia it's probably got to a, a place that from a consumer point of view, they're not getting bombarded all the time with gambling advertising to the extent they were. Um, and from an operator's point of view, you can still um, advertise and try and grow um, your, your business. What would the biggest sport to attract Australian gambling dollars be? So uh, racing obviously is, the, is still the largest um, turnover sport and then dogs and trots. Um, but the biggest sport would surprise many is actually basketball. Um, and then AFL and Rugby League, but basketball is the biggest turnover um, sport and the NBA is obviously massive, the amount of games and content that's on and also it's on a very good time um, period for us. It's um, in the mornings our time and there's not a huge amount of other content during that, that period. Um, but yeah, basketball is, uh, if you'd said to me 10 years ago, basketball would be the most bet sport in Australia, I would have laughed, but um, yeah, it's huge. That would be quite surprising to a lot of people, I imagine. Yeah. And finally, you've achieved a great deal. I think you're only in your mid-30s still. Um, what would you like to go on and do for the rest of your life? Um, look, I think from... Um, I just want to keep growing businesses. I love, I love working. I get out of bed every morning just so excited to, to be at work. Um, I, and I think like my, my parents, I, they love working there. They don't need to work, um, and I don't feel that I need to work, but I just love, um, it's, some people like golf and tennis or whatever, I, to me getting out of bed every morning and thinking how can we um, grow this business is really exciting, and, and um, whether it's with the TomWaterhouse.com brand or, or other businesses, um, I'm just gonna be focused on that. Brilliant, Tom Waterhouse, thank you very much. Thanks so much, thank you. Follow our top sporting brand ambassadors, Davey Russell, Sylvester D'Souza and Ryan Sidebottom for their exclusive news, views and tips on all the major events with blogs and vlogs at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.